Dolan Martin on Filter Daily Digital Show is up next. In about four minutes and 21 seconds and counting. It's 9.08 p.m. It's Thursday. Throwback Thursday. April 1st, 2021. That's no joke. It's really April 1st. <laughs> Not a prank. The days are just going by too fast. Roland will take his time to come up. Let's see if there are any good news reports. There's plenty of uh, shocking news, but in what year? These are trivia questions. For, for April and Easter eggs. In what year was the Dr. Seuss book, Green Eggs and Ham, published? What giant bird lays large blue-green eggs, each weighing about two pounds? Number three, elaborately decorated eggs called P-Y-S-A-N-K-Y Paisanki are a tradition of what country? And I would say Russia because they do that beautifully. <laughs> Number four, what is the filling inside a Cadbury cream egg? Ooh, I really don't know. Maybe caramel, caramel cream. Number five, which funny film characters made their screen debut in the 1947 movie, The Egg and I? Well, that was before I was here, so I never heard of that one. I can guess maybe Dr. Seuss' book, Green Eggs and Ham. Maybe just a wild guess, I'd say. 1970. No, 1960. And what giant bird lays large blue-green eggs, each weighing about two pounds? Ah. The flamingo is so beautiful, but I doubt if that's it. It's probably, um, mm, maybe the peacock. 
because they have they have those blue green feathers blue green and other colors elaborately decorated eggs called Paisanki are a tradition of what country Russia okay what other trivia do we have here Survive soggy showers with these rainy day hacks. Oh, here they are. General Motors says they're going to double their annual spend to black owned companies. But why are they waiting four years to go from 4% to 8%? We'll discuss that next in our Where's Our Money segment. Also on today's show, day four of their show, the murder trial. More gripping testimony, folks, will show you. Fair fights with Stacey April is a message for everyone fighting Georgia voter suppression to show you what she had to say and where she stands. In Texas, the Senate passes a voter a suppression bill. We'll tell you about that. Also, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation announced a five-year multi-million dollar grant today. They'll talk to us exclusively about where it's going. We'll also talk to some black Amazon employees who voted against unionizing. They want to say... They got to say in this too. Plus, two Greenville County, South Carolina sheriff's deputies are being sued for excessive force in the case of Stephon Hopkins. We'll show you exactly what happened. The decorated vet is at risk of being reincarcerated in Alabama because of a paperwork issue. What the hell? It's time to bring the funk. A roller mark unfiltered. Let's go.
partners on the ground are finding creative, collaborative solutions that tap into local food waste. They're bringing people together, helping neighbors feed neighbors, and looking to the welfare of the people who make the food too. Since the onset of the pandemic, we've increased uh, by at least 18 to 20 percent in our homebound um, population. We've hired many of our um, culinary arts students in our current kitchen. We were thrilled to receive these SNF grants. We saw that we needed to increase, we needed to ramp up, we needed to do something called create a community kitchen. We went from producing six or 700 meals per day to more like more than 1,000 per day. And that was to make sure that anyone in the community who needed got a meal. So thanks to Severus New Yorkers Foundation, all New Yorkers have access to this incredible fresh produce that's grown right here in our region. And it also enables them to shop safely outside and it allows them to participate in a local food system and, and shop with their values. Κάτι που μπορεί πριν στην πανδημία να το θεωρούσαμε δεδομένο, να έχουμε αρκετό φαγητό μπροστά μας, πλέον δεν είναι αυτονόητο. Μέσω της ΚΕΔΕ καταφέρουμε και υποστηρίξαμε πάνω από 300 δήμους σε όλη την Ελλάδα με τρόφιμα στα κοινωνικά πατοπολία τους και στραφήκαμε και στον μικροσκοπικό οργανισμό Μπορούμε ώστε να παρέχουμε μέσω του προγράμματος Σύμμαχη Οικογένεια διατακτικές στους 300 μεγαλύτερους δήμους στην Ελλάδα. Inicialmente, a ideia da Câmara era abrir um espaço em Lisboa que desse comida às pessoas que estivessem em situação de vulnerabilidade, que estivessem na rua. A Câmara propôs à Câmara Municipal que, em vez disso, que, por que não colocar as pessoas que estão em situação de vulnerabilidade a trabalhar e que elas se alimentassem qualquer um de nós? SNF COVID-19 response gave a great emphasis to food aid focusing on countries that were hit the hardest. And in this particular case, in the European context, we started with Italy and Spain and the most vulnerable groups are from families with young children, to people living on the street, refugees, migrants, elderly and people with disabilities. Our group of volunteers working on the street with the migrants and the children in the world are trying to help homeless people that need everything. And uh, we help them providing all food, all supplies, because their situation was really, really hard for them. Santo is supporting small-scale made mirrors Making sure each of us has enough to eat is a global problem, but addressing it requires bringing people together around local, community-based solutions. SNF honors all of our partners who bring innovative ideas to the table for making sure everyone has food on the table. Together, we'll work toward that world. Uh, we have been focused on this whole issue of black-owned media and what is happening in this country and how black-owned media is being 
throws him out of the advertising dollars. Well, we told you the other day, uh, where Byron Allen and others, including myself, signed a letter uh, that was published in the Detroit Free Press. It also was published a full-page uh, letter in the Wall Street Journal uh, and other papers, highly criticizing General Motors for their refusal to meet with CEOs, to meet with black-owned media CEOs. That led to a meeting on Monday with uh, the head of the chief marketing officer for General Motors. We were supposed to have a meeting today with the CEO of General Motors, Harry Barra. Yet last night, they canceled that meeting. Why did they cancel that meeting? Because we ran that particular ad in the Wall Street Journal. They also said that our numbers were wrong. and There was other faulty information. We said, fine, provide us with the actual numbers. They said, no, you can't do that for competitive reasons. Really? That's, that's, that's strange. So we've been making the case that, look, if we're talking about this whole issue of black-owned media, and if you're General Motors, if you're getting 11.4% of the dollars that black people are market share, African-Americans are buying 11.4% of the cars uh, from General Motors, they sell 7.7 .7 million annually, so right now, you're, they went from 1% to 2%. Now they announced today that they're actually going to do 4% by 2022. And in the announcement, what they also said, I'm going to pull it up on, on ad age for you. They also announced that by 2025, they'll be doing 8%. Interesting. This is the headline right here, folks. Uh, in ad age. If y'all can go to my iPad, uh, that'd be great. Uh, I want to show this. GM says it will increase spending on black-owned media. The automaker said it plans to dedicate 4% of its advertising budget to black-owned media by 2022 and 8% by 2025. Hmm. Interesting. Certainly right now uh, is uh, Todd Brown. Todd, one of the signatories uh, of that particular and Todd uh, has HBCU uh, uh, passed. He, of course, was the publisher at Ebony also uh, with a top executive at Rio and Comcast as well. So so let's deal with this, Todd. So so here's what's interesting. Here now, all of a sudden, we had this meeting on Monday. You were on the call. I was on the call. Byron Allen was on the call. Butch Graves from Black Enterprise, Junior Bridgman, Bart Ebony was on the call. We're all on the call. And General Motors tells us, Hey, we doubled our spend. Okay, you, you, you doubled the spend from one to two percent. Now, now they're announcing we're going to go to four percent, and by 2025 we're going to go to eight percent. Um, why the hell can't you go to eight now? Todd, your thoughts? Yes, interesting, Roland. I think the big thing is is a conversation about a numerator and a denominator. So if you believe what is published in the same magazine that they ran the headline in, the number at the macro level feels like $3 billion. And we have canvassed and talked, and unfortunately, we can put our hands on 99 95% of black-owned media, and the numbers we come up with are far below half of a percent. And as you say, we represent 11.4% of 
position to fight over scarcity, which is crumbs. And I think the idea that they now are using the terminology, black-owned media, they're also using the terminology four and eight percent. I think those things are good, but we have to get the math and we have to have transparency. Otherwise, let's be blunt. I was running Ebony and Jet as a group publisher when Jet was sunsetting. I was at Ebony. We're in a position where we could not afford to run the ads when indeed we got ads at the prices which were up to 80% versus our competitive set and the volume was 70-80% versus our our competitive set. And Roland, what that really means is I can't afford to print the magazine, I can't afford to pay writers, I can't afford to pay pub, I can't afford to pay on publisher, I can't afford to pay mail. So at the end of the day, the conversation about $1.7 trillion potentially of spend coming from black people happens to mirror in a very interesting way with $170 billion of advertising per year, which in 10 years, ironically, Roland, is $1.7 trillion. So we're asking for our pool to increase from $100 million in, 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 in a very macro way around black-owned to a number that starts to look like 2 to 3 to $4 billion, with a goal toward getting to $10 billion uh, of the overall spend, which gives an ecosystem, and that's what I'm excited about. It's not just a seven. It's everyone in black media on the ownership side is suffering from this scarcity model. So when we start to get the economy, it starts to just, it, all boats rock. It's just clear. So, so, so for everybody who's, who's watching, so let me just, I, I want to lay the groundwork for you so you can understand why we ain't playing games. 1990, the first job in media where I got paid a check was at the Houston Defender. In 1992, I'm working for the Austin American Statesman. I go to the Fort Worth Star Telegram in 1993. I'm writing columns for the Houston Defender at the same time. In 1995, I leave the Fort Worth Star Telegram and I go to KKDA Radio, black targeted radio station. Top radio station on the AM side, on K-104, tops on the Metro side. Then, 1999. 98, I'm writing for the Dallas Examiner, black-owned newspaper. 1999, I start writing for, and I become the managing editor of the Dallas Weekly. Excuse me, 1998, black-owned newspaper. In 97, Dallas Examiner. 1999, I become managing editor of the Houston Defender, black-owned newspaper. 2001, Lead top editor at blackamericaweb.com, owned by Tom Joyner, black-owned. 2004, take over the Chicago Defender, later become general manager, black-owned. Did some work in 2000 for major broadcasting cable network, black-owned cable network. Of course, joined to TV One in 2005, black-owned. Okay, Vanguard Media, news editor, Savoy Magazine, black-owned. I'm laying all that out. Because I've done black-owned in newspaper, radio, television, digital, all the platforms. And Todd, the reality has been the same. Black-owned media has gotten 20 cents on the dollar, has been left begging, has not gotten a fair share of political advertising dollars, uh, dollars from major corporations all across the board, pharmaceuticals, take the category. And so... What we're doing by calling these people out, what we're simply saying to folks that what y'all have been doing, matter of fact, 
I'm gonna let Malcolm X. I'm gonna let Denzel ask Malcolm X speak yes. for us. This right here, y'all, is really the position that we're taking. Break it up. You got what you wanted. No, I'm not satisfied. <laughs> That's it. No, we're not satisfied. General Motors, with this announcement right here that y'all have made, we're still not satisfied with 4%. Roman, what I would say to you is that when we don't control our means of communicating our issues because we can't afford to, then somebody else is going to define us. We have to tie group economics as a collective to the amount of spend and impact we have on the economy, and we have to call on that spend as an opportunity for equity when it comes to our fair share of the marketplace, which we, by and large, drive in the news cycle, the entertainment cycle, the sports cycle. And then, frankly, Roland, what really angers me is that we don't get a chance to experiment at all. You can see new mediums come up like Refinery29. I was at Viacom when we launched the Logo Channel. They can experiment and get a forward investment into those mediums, and then they get a chance to build. We get a chance to die and we're on a survival capital and it just doesn't work. So we have to have this conversation or I promise you we're going to be in a similar fate to most of our black owned newspapers, what we're seeing in the magazine business. And by the way, Roland, it's not just that they didn't keep up with technology. They couldn't afford to invest in technology. Last thing, you and I always talk about this. If I could afford to put $10 million into an idea for talk radio and the party line, we could own a $2 billion franchise today called Clubhouse, which is largely excitable by black voices. This is why we have to do this, because we have to create a space for ourselves, and we have to create a space for our children. And I want everybody to understand what we face when we go to these ad agencies and companies who then demand, what are your numbers? Prove to us uh, that you can deliver an audience. Go to my iPad. Quibi. Quibi, y'all, announced short-form media. They announced, they announced that they uh, were launching this app. They raised $1.75 billion. Jeffrey Katzenberg, uh, 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 of course, the former CEO of eBay. Y'all, no, no, go back. Please, go back. They raised $1.75 billion. Y'all, they lasted six months before they went out of business. Now, what y'all don't realize is... They had guarantees. They had guarantees. They locked up millions of dollars in advertising. Y'all, they had no proof of their model. Mm. So, Todd, what's crazy is there's no way these same ad agencies and these companies mm. would give me or you two and three and four and five hundred million in advertising up front for a product that could not prove its concept. Exactly. The, the, the mouth only works, Roland, when it's a hammer. And I've seen this with major corporations in CPG. I've seen it with most people that were advertising in the books I was running with Ebony and Jeff. Every time we're below the threshold or can't afford to pay the auditor on the rate base audits, then we are penalized where we end up owing a make good that put, pretty much puts us out of business. And I see Ford investment for years into Facebook until they figure out what their ad model is.
In fact, hold on, Todd. Todd, Todd, Todd hold on, Todd. Here's a paragraph. Y'all, please, go, go, to, go to my iPad. Look at this right here. Quibi booked $150 million in advertising, selling out its first full year of inventory months ahead of launch. Now, well, Roland, are you are you saying they were invited to an upfront and someone bet on their potential? That sounds like what you're saying. Yes, and here's what I know. I know for a fact that it took TV One 12 years. I need everybody listening to me right now. It took TV One 12 years to hit 100 million dollars in revenue quibi booked 150 million dollars in revenue before they opened on day one and oh by the way roland that's advertising and subscriptions in the tv one number so that's two models the other thing i would say that with quibi if i'm not mistaken meg whitman was one of the key principals she just became a board member at general motors See, and again, the reason we're spending this amount of time on this for everybody who's watching is because y'all need to understand when y'all say, well, why can't y'all do this? Why can't y'all go here? Why can't we have this? If you don't have the money to do it, you can't do those things. The reason you do not see a daily national black newspaper is because of this. Is because major companies, what they do is, they say, oh yeah, you white? You upstart? Oh, we're going to bet on your prior, your prior success. We're just going to lavish you with I'm money. I'm betting on your potential. Roland? I was at Ebony and Jed as a group publisher. We could not afford to have a White House correspondent. We never got invited to the correspondence dinner. I could not afford to have a reporter from Ebony and Jed on the Air Force One. All those monies come from investment through advertising and subscriptions. And the largest part of that, because subscriptions was really driven in order to drive the rate, was advertising. And when we were locked out systemically from that, therefore, there's no chance to expand onto other media, to experiment, and to deliver value and even credibility around the stories we could cover, which again, all driven through the consumerism of our people and never coming back to the group economics that impacts our ability to build a better life for our children and our community. See, what folk don't get, what people don't get is, and again, this ain't just General Motors. This Amen. is every single one of these companies. Todd, explain to people how much is spent annually in advertising in the United States of the very company that black people buy products from. The notion of the, the math is clear. $170 billion is being spent. And $100 million is going towards black-owned, not black-targeted. Because, oh, by the way, Roland, if you're black-targeted, you can be blackface on white media, and they could buy that as a surrogate for spending money with a platform that can tell our stories in an authentic way that comes from us by us.
170 billion across the Fortune 500, you're talking about budgets from 500 million to 3 billion to 6.6 billion is the last number I read at Amazon. So you're talking about Facebook that's north of 4 to 5 billion. You're talking about major, major players that harvest black analytics, they harvest black consumption, they sell products to black people, and they do not invest or do business or create a commerce opportunity where blacks can participate. And systemically, and we keep using that term, bro, it's set up that we cannot play. And that's why we're asking for a forward investment in the, the landmark of storytelling for the black community, because it's about to go extinct. The thing that we were seeing is called by choking off the advertising, you're choking off your future. Bottom line is this here, Todd. There's no media company that survives without advertising. None. Roland, we'll be remiss if we didn't talk about the tactic of how do you break up a collective action. If we don't talk about the fact that folk are so hungry for survivability, and I was in a company that was on his lifeblood, when I was an equity owner and CEO of the GRIA, we could not, with 6 million monthly average viewers, convince anyone that they should buy ads with us because they went with the tonnage of black, aggregated, white-owned mediums. And so if we don't have the ability to tell our story and to pay our bills, we're forced into extinction. How about this, Todd? Todd, Todd, hold on. I want you to explain, because I, the reason we're walking through all of this because our people need to understand. You and I are on the inside fighting this thing, and the people on the outside don't realize it. Tell folks what Ebony was charging for a full-page ad compared to magazines that were not as big as Ebony. Well, when I got there, Jeff, which, by the way, had an audited distribution of 800000 in a slow month, 700000 Esquire Magazine had a 500,000 audited base. Their ad rate was close to $200,000. On average, Jet was getting $7,000 per ad, and we could not get 20% of the ad potential in that magazine. That means that you're getting less than 20 pages at $7,000. They're getting 50 to 60 pages in Esquire at $150,000 to $200,000 a page. The economics on that destroy you. So that's low volume and the lowest rate. Frankly, it was consistently 80% less. On Jet, on Ebony, which was our big book, with 1.25 million audited, distributed uh, uh, content and then uh, 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 readers and 10 million readership, meaning when you buy an Ebony, Roland, you don't just read it once. We pass it to the barbershop. We keep, so the readership was 10 million. And our book rate when I got there was closer to 25K, and I was able, after I got shut down, to get it to 60K a page. I got Apple to run in the book, and when they started running at that number, the advertising industry turned off the spigot. We couldn't get 30 pages at 50K. So that is a going out of business. And by the way, Lifebook Vogue, uh, Lifebook's Oprah Winfrey's magazine that was running in the Hearst infrastructure are getting in the hundreds the 200 a page, and they're getting the front and the back. So you're in a position, Roland, with the same kind, and by the way, blacks are the most impressionable, meaning that the ad that are sent to them, they actually take actions. 
We actually support the people that support us. So and it was consistently impossible to get a reasonable rate. So you, so you, you asked, you asked, uh, you, some, literally, somebody named Beloved on YouTube said, "How did Old Magazine make money?" Just as you were mentioning it, and it's very clear, folks. Listen to me very clearly. Hearst owned Old Magazine. Almost Hearst, Hearst ran Old Magazine. <laughs> what we're trying to explain to y'all is the advertising industry and major companies has no problem paying full market rate for products that target black people. They don't like it. They will not pay full rates if it is black owned. Somebody did not listen to what I just said. If you have a black... I lived it. Right. You get a black targeted publication. That's white, that's white ad agencies, white companies dealing with white sales exec. They'll pay the full rate. They will not pay the full rate if you're black owned. Go ahead. Roland, I just wanted to say this is not just about the, the modality. So that's just not the print and the magazine and the newspaper business. We had a robust digital business called the Grio. I, I sold it to Byron Allen, who is now invested heavily and making sure that that platform is available to tell our stories. So the reality of it is, even when we're able to get a clear density of an audience, most in the right demographic and female, I still could not get them to do a direct buy at any consistent rate for those eyeballs and impressions. So it's not just, oh, you're crying, trying to take us back 50 years into the print world. I'm talking about the digital world. No matter what the modality was, we faced the same extinction reality. That's why we're having this fight, Roland. So for everybody who's listening, I want y'all to understand. Essence Magazine does not make money. 90% of the money is made from the Essence Festival. Black Enterprise, when the last time y'all seen a hard copy? When the last time have y'all seen a hard copy of Black Enterprise? A magazine of Black Enterprise? Been several years. Butch Graves said and told me point blank, Black Enterprise does, does not exist if they do not have conferences. That's why every time you turn around, there's a new email about a Black Enterprise Summit. That's the only way they even survive. They're not funding us. But if, I'd like but, to add one more thing. But hold up, but, but Todd, but if we were black targeted <laughs> and white owned, and again, and y'all, I'm just walking y'all through the facts here. Uh, iHeartRadio launches Black Information Network. That's, I have a commentary on it. That's black targeted, not black owned. They were able to sign up major advertisers before they even launched on day one. You have uh, Spotify announces these new podcasts for blacks with Jamel Hill. Spotify not black owned. The Black News Channel. The Pakistani American. Uh, uh, Shah Khan. Shahid Khan who owns Jacksonville Jaguars. He owns a majority of that. Black News Channel is not black owned. 
it's black targeted. Complex is considered to be the number one digital brand to reach black consumers. Complex is owned by Hearst. Bounce TV is not black owned. They are black targeted. Also, I need y'all to stop saying that Magic Johnson owns Aspire. He does not. Aspire has been sold. Aspire, a black targeted network, is white owned. But they are able to go in and get significant dollars from companies by being black targeted and not black owned. So what I'm saying, Todd, and I've been saying this, everybody gets to monetize blackness and benefit from it except black people. Well, Kira Mayo, our former editor-in-chief, made a statement which I think resonates very well, Roland. And her statement was, everybody loves black culture, but not everybody loves black people. <laughs> so if you can love my culture and be comfortable with me getting less than half a percent of an opportunity to tell my own story, but you count on and I like to say the phrase because it's true, black face on white-owned media. That means, Roland, that if they are selling me to the general market, the rate works. If it's me selling, the scales are imbalanced. That's what this conversation is about. That's what this conversation is about. Some of y'all are asking me, what about Revolt? Diddy owns that. They can't get the money, which means they can't grow. I told y'all, pre-COVID, in black America, there were 2.6 million black-owned businesses. 2.5 million of them had one employee. They were doing an average revenue of $54,000. That means out of all the black... So truth be told, we don't have 2.6 million black-owned businesses. We don't. Truth be told, we have 100,000. So, so, Roland, if you're black-targeted and I have a good job, why are you so angry about black... Oh, you want health equity and wealth and generational and community. So everybody is happy when one of us gets a great job. Stephen A. has a great job, but that does not improve or create wealth outside of what he controls, which is his, his immediate family. And I'm not picking on Stephen A. I'm proud that he has a platform to tell stories. But the fact is, if I'm black-owned, I create the number of employees and opportunities, and I reimagine what an investment would look like in our community using our culture with our people. That's how we live from a wealth gap of 700% for them and almost nothing for us. Uh, somebody said, buy magazine. Yes, Quincy Jones was a founder. But y'all, Eldridge Industries bought the company Spin Media. They're not black-owned. The Root is not black-owned. The Root is owned by a white private equity firm. Y'all, I'm trying... What I'm trying to get y'all to understand is Roland? that black, black Voices is not black-owned. Huffington Post... Huffington Post owns Black Voices, which is now owned by BuzzFeed. Sir, can I speak to a root cause issue? Yep. Less than 2% of African-Americans are carrying a VP title in corporate America. So we're not getting hired and we're not matriculating and we're not getting to the decision point to actually allocate resources. I'm not talking about chief diversity officer. I'm not talking about community relations. I'm not talking about respectfully HR. I'm talking about P&L and decision making. 
So if we're not matriculating in these companies and we can't make decisions inside of them, and we don't have a supply chain equity conversation in the areas of our commerce cycle, then you're setting me up to continue the gap. I keep going back to the point. If there's no wealth to be poured into the bets on ourselves and we don't make any demands, we will continue to be eliminated from the marketplace. That is why we're fighting this fight. Folks, Marjorie Donats, Marjorie Donat just hit this on time. I want you to answer this question. She said, most of us here in this chat room aren't in media or marketing. Good information, but I can't do much with it. She's wrong. She's absolutely wrong. Because when we don't show up and start asking the question, which you asked on an interview today, Roland, you asked the CEOs to answer the question, what is your black spin? What are you doing inside this company on hiring, on decision-making, and you have the right especially in this current climate, to ask that uncomfortable question. What is your strategy? What is your plan? And what are you doing, especially when we know that $1.3 is trillion is being spent in this economy? It is the time to ask the question. Because, by the way, we believe that the same gap exists in other areas of acquisition, not just media, in other supply chain areas. But we're starting with what we control, and the stories that we can tell, because when you fix media, you can then retell your story about the other story. But if you don't have media rolling, somebody else will be telling your story. So for the people who are watching, the people who are saying, you know, I can't do anything with this. This is what we were trying to get you to start doing. You're in organizations. You are actually uh, buying products. You need to start asking the questions. Oh, say it company. Who I keep giving my money to. Not only do I want to know, do you have blacks on your board of directors? Who are your black senior executives? And what is your black spin? Are you use are you spending money with black advertising agencies? What is your marketing budget? How much of your marketing budget is going to black-owned companies? Do you have events that where you cater? Are you using any black catering companies? Do you do, do you have transportation in your company? Are you using black transportation companies? What we're trying to do here, Todd, is to get our people, is to get our people to start asking these questions up front before we make moves and stop falling for the okie doke of companies telling us how much they are going to give in charity. For instance, General Motors had announced, and if I can find it, uh, one second, y'all. I want y'all to understand. The foundation. They're yeah. going to bring the foundation and tell us what they're doing uh, with their foundation. I want y'all to understand. Roland, here it is right here, y'all. I want y'all to understand. This is June 5th, 2020. This is June 5th, 2020. Let me see if I can switch. It's uh, uh, on my computer. This is June 5th, uh, 2020, um, where... You should be able to see it now. Um, General Motors designates $10 million to support organizations which promote inclusion and racial justice. $1 million was going to go to the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Todd, based upon our research, General Motors was going to give more in social justice 
wow. than black-owned media was actually getting in advertising. Well, unfortunately, Roland, that approach to social diversity, equity, and inclusion statements and photo ops lack intent, they lack impact, and they lack investment. And when you're having a business-to-business -business conversation, only when it comes to black people do you have a conversation about foundation and advocacy. And I had this conversation in a public forum. No other interest group has their advocacy group as a company for their commerce transaction. I don't see it in any other group. I don't see it with GLAD. I don't see it with the Jewish Defamation League. I don't see them competing for commerce transactions. They're truly fighting for advocacy. And when they get investment in their organizations, it's not as a substitute for a business transaction, which creates generational wealth and opportunities for that community. And we just got to be frank about it, Roland. We have to stop allowing advocates to act as business professionals when their job is to advocate, highlight, and represent our ability to tell our story, and then we have to do business to business with a clear ask. So what we're talking about here, folks, uh, and again, to set this whole thing up, we, we began the show, uh, we were supposed to, Todd and I, along with Byron Allen and others, were supposed to be meeting today with General Motors to talk about uh, spending, uh, and let me tell you what the ask was. See, I, I want y'all to understand. We're very clear. Matter of fact, Todd, so explain to everybody. So, okay, let me reset it. I just told y'all, go back to my computer. I just told y'all, I just told y'all that on June 5th, 2020, General Motors announced that they were going to give $10 million to support organizations which promote racial, which, which promote inclusion and racial justice. Based upon our research, and we've told General Motors, if we're wrong, present us the real information. Show us. That... General Motors was spending less than that with black-owned media. So, so today, so first of all, so Todd, explain to people, explain to people what we asked General Motors for. Roland, we were very clear. We asked for a conversation with Mary, their CEO, to have a dialogue about what they're doing with their media spin on black home. And we wanted to begin a conversation so she could get to know us and we could get to know her because we were excited that she's made some really wonderful statements. And we think her intent around wanting to make this happen is important. But we think it's important that we build a game plan with the principals who represent black-owned media. And once you do that, we can begin a dialogue about how to fix what we know is an economic gap how much money we spend with them and how little business they do with us in the media no, space. No, but, but explain to people what our ask was. We said... A two, meeting. We said, that we said two, no, no, we said 200 million a year for well, the next... Let me next explain that, Roland, because the conversation immediately started around a goal as a, percentage of, as a percentage of spend. Since there was no clarity and no agreement on their side on what their spend is, even though AdAge and others are pretty clear and been consistently clear about what they think their spin is, we said that what we need is a minimum of $200 million with a year with 5% escalators, and we need that for a 10-year time period. So, so we were saying, we were saying we want to sign a 10-year contract that minimum is $2 billion going to black-owned 
uh, media companies. This is solely with General Motors. Two billion over Bro, a ten-year period. You have to contrast that. You have to contrast that with the total amount of spend in all of corporate America today on black-owned. It's a hundred million, and we've allowed that to happen. So, for everybody now, listening, for everybody listening, black-owned media gets one hundred million annually out of what the hundred and seventy billion they spend. A hundred and seventy billion. And so when we start to ask about, and Byron likes to say this, when we start putting water in the ocean, all boats now can float. Most of the boats are actually trying to sail on sand, if not have gotten out of the boat altogether. So the, the, the reality, Roland, when General Motors starts to spend, not to the level that we spend with them, 11.4, when they start to spend directionally where, with us, it changes the landscape of black media, black-owned media, materially, one company. And we do plan to have this conversation at least a thousand more times. <laughs> so this is what folks don't need to understand. So uh, this is what we're walking through. This is what we're trying to explain to get people to understand and why we're making the point. And so, again, I appreciate General Motors announcing that they will go to 4% by 2022. I am saying right now to General Motors, it is wholly unacceptable to get to 8% by 2025 when you can do it now. You do not have to wait four years to increase to 8%. You should be spending 8% right now. So, Roman, if they spend 8%, you're saying they have another potentially 2.8 billion to keep doing what they do with ads and, and directional. So you're actually asking that they spend a couple hundred million out of three billion. So I just want to contextually, because sometimes as, as as people of color and black people, we tend to get excited about numbers, but the wrong numbers. 200 million and one company, as opposed to us fighting and, and damn near killing each other over. One to ten depends on whose math you want to have. That's the problem, sir. That's the problem. Now, again, last point here. I need people to listen to me very clearly, and I'm going to say this very slowly. African Americans account for 11.4% of all cars sold by GM annually. So what GM is saying is, Black-owned media, you were getting 1%. We went to 2 Now we're pledging to go to 4% by next year. And by 2025, we'll get to 8%. So, black people, you're 11.4%. Four, four is right here. They're saying by year four, we'll get to 8 That's still below the percentage of cars black folks buy every year. I'm sorry, General Motors, 8% by 2025 is completely unacceptable. We are not satisfied. Final point, Todd. Roland, I, I've seen companies like Refinery29 get investments of up to $450 million on a venture side, which has largely been closed to black folks, venture and private equity. I see those companies be 
be worth and valued at $4 billion that have started 15 years ago that focus on a crowded marketplace called women. I've seen discrimination uh, uh, statements made by employees about how they felt about being treated in those ecosystems, specifically black women. And then I see us struggling to have a conversation to tell our stories and not getting any forward investment. And, and frankly, recompense for the money that we put out to tell our stories. And here's the thing that people don't, don't process, Roland. When you invest in black media, when you invest in black people, you get even a higher return in loyalty and, and, and creativity and brand connections, as opposed to having people who don't understand us try to tell our story poorly. So, so this is really about fair play, equity, and the right thing to do at the right moment. Todd Brown, uh, we appreciate it. Thank you so very much. Thank you, sir. Dr. Greg Carr, Chair of the Department of Afro-American Studies at Howard University, joins us right now. Dr. Carr, how you doing? Doc, you there? Yes. All right. You listen. Hey, yes, you, I am. You, you hey, heard bro. that conversation, Dr. Carr. You heard that conversation there. I did. And again, we're trying to walk people through what we're talking about. This is black economic social justice. This is exactly what Dr. King was talking about in the March on Washington for, civil, uh, for Freedom uh, and Jobs. This is exactly what he was talking about uh, with Operation Breadbasket. This is exactly what he was talking about the night before he was assassinated. This is, this is, this is it. If you be labor in uh, a hierarchy that can't be displaced without serious policy fixes, and a lot of that is, is, is government because private industry is not going to do it. You know, listening to you all and everyone listening, please understand, you know, you show this to your children, show it to your college students who are in schools of businesses at HBCUs and other places to help them understand. We talk about entrepreneurship without ownership and collective, uh, a collective capacity. We are then forced to organize ourselves outside of the structure, which means our bodies. We have to engage in withdrawing our dollars. Now, you know, when Todd said, for example, it's set up for us that we cannot play, he's talking about the way the economic system works. You know, today in my hip-hop class, uh, we were walking through the history of the Source magazine, and I'm glad you mentioned Vibe and, and Quincy Jones. Uh, the Source is created. Uh, they begin to drive ad revenue, and as they're driving ad revenue, they blow up. Quincy Jones, Russell Simmons, and them approach Time Warner and say, loan us some money to get in this game to start Vibe magazine. So they get the initial capital because they initially went to the Source to say, we want to buy you, and the offer was low and this kind of thing. But we had a, an interesting conversation because these young people often don't know the history even of the culture they consume. And finally, it led to this, a fascinating conversation about how, and I love the way Todd said, they harvest black catalytics. They harvest black consumption. When SoundScan appeared, we talked about this today, when SoundScan appeared and they realized that the leading sales based on purchases that had been, that had been scanned in were country music, uh, punk rock, uh, hard rock, and hip-hop, they realized that these genres, these micro-genres are very popular. That spun their thinking. Fast forward 40 years to where we are today. Now, instead of just genres and music, we're talking about niche markets. And in niche markets, what you have is things that are being curated by algorithms, and they are mining data, meaning they hire uh, black-targeted media and not black-owned media because... They don't need black institutions. And so what you're doing, what you're talking about, what you and Todd are talking about is really black institutional power. When ad revenue goes to black 
uh, media, that means black institutions are empowered and we can make independent self-determining choices. They are not interested in that. This, this little concession here from Jim, this is crisis management. In other words, off the fear that our people might get organized and begin to withdraw and buying power. But that only works if we at some point exercise that ability. And that's why media is so important to get that message across. And that's what Dr. King was talking about. This is a very powerful conversation y'all were having, brother. Really, Lee Lewis, look, I just want to bring you into this conversation. Um, and, 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 and I'm framing this because what we are discussing, Brittany, also applies to politics. Because what people don't understand is every single one of these political campaigns, Brittany, guess what they do? They hire white ad agencies. And those white ad agencies do the exact same thing corporate America does. And so what we're talking about is, and, 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 and what all these people don't realize out here, Brittany, is that there are numerous radio stations, TV stations, and newspapers that project and predict the kind of money they are going to earn during the political season. Every two years, they like, ooh, we about to get paid. Georgia, they bought so many ads in Georgia that if you own a radio station or TV station, you were 30 and 40% higher than your projections. They they don't like bandits. Black media wasn't getting that money. What people have to understand, Brittany, that then means you're not having black wealth. They got no problem giving black people checks. The problem is when black folks start writing checks. Absolutely, Roland. I mean, I, I can't really state it any better than, than you, the previous gentleman that was on in Dr. Carr. I mean, we know this is about institutional power. We also know it's about controlling our own narrative. If we don't have control of the media, we don't have control of what type of information is going out to our communities. And the information that goes out to our communities is so depends so heavily and is so much it is, is deeply connected to our politics, our ideologies, the information that we consume. There's so many people that rely um, on their information via the via the media. Um, so this is an extremely important conversation that we all need to care about and that we all need to be a part of. Um, so you know, you hit the nail on the head, Roland. And, and, and the reason we keep hitting this, Greg, and, and you laid it out, I mean, the reality is the only reason we're at this point of GM even going to 4% is because of the pressure that we put on them. And then what they have been doing and what companies try to do, Greg, they try to pick black folks off individually. See, we came as a collective. We came saying, uh-uh, the number is $200 million. We Y'all spending $3 billion a year. They keep saying that number's wrong. Fine, give us the correct number. Well, no, we can't give the correct number because that's a competitive disadvantage. Well, don't tell me my number is wrong if you can't give me the right number. So I'm going to go with publicly available information. So when we say the $200 million, what we're really saying is don't try to throw an extra fifty, dollars 100000 at this black media company when they really should be getting an extra million or $2 million. We are trying to operate like OPEC, the collective. When you operate as a collective, you actually have more power because by bringing the collective, you can demand more. Absolutely. I'm glad you used the OPEC uh, metaphor, uh, Roland, because OPEC has control of oil. And in the metaphor, then, what would what would the uh, what would what would the example be for us? 
We are the oil. We are the resource. But the oil's in the ground. It's going to respond to whoever goes and gets it. Our people have to be educated, which ironically, as Brittany just said, is a function of the media. You know, W.E. Du Bois was working at Atlanta University for about a decade and a half when he said, you know, I just thought the world was thinking wrong about race primarily. And then they lit Sam Hose and they had his knuckles on display in downtown Atlanta. And I said, you know what, this is a war of propaganda. And so part of education is about propaganda. You know, another another subject, our young people, we were talking about on Tuesday in class was this Lil Nas X phenomenon. Now, Lil, Lil Nas X uh, has a company, is in partnership with a company. They drop some sneakers, allegedly with a drop of blood in the soul or something. He releases this album, I mean, this, this single with all this demonic stuff in it. And he, he's keeping everything going. John Caramark in the New York Times on Tuesday said, Lil Nas X is a master troll. He got all y'all. What is he doing? He's burnishing his brand. How does that relate to what you're talking about now? Nike sues the company, but they don't sue Lil Nas X because, like Kanye, they might want to go into business with him at a moment. He will be a high-played employee. People will buy the shoes. People will say it's for the culture. And Nike makes all the money. The only way, and by the way, Lil Nas X started by having Nicki uh, Minaj stan accounts on social media and really blew up with Old Town Road, his monster single, on TikTok. Another, give your talent for free, they, to use, uh, to use uh, Todd's example, they harvest black analytics, they harvest black consumption when you upload, when they curate you on Spotify, you drop your stuff on SoundCloud, they're just sitting back picking winners and looters, and next thing you know, you looking at the award shows like this is black power, it's not black power. It is white power with black employees. And the only way you break that cycle is to re-educate our people. And again, as Brittany said, finally, you've got to do that through mass media. That's why mass news media is so important. So if you're the only game in town, Roland, and you're not, but informing partnerships with other independent black media, informing collective, and then in us supporting you, we slowly build that self-determining power. And that is not the only thing we have to do. We have to... As Dr. King said, redistribute the pain. Y'all ain't giving us pennies. You can mine our analytics all we want. We're not buying no shoes. We're not listening to that music. We're not supporting any of that until our platforms are put in a position to compete with you. And we know in a capitalist society, that is simply never going to happen. We got to get organized and redistribute the pain. Final point here, Brittany, before I go to a break, and that is this. What we're arguing here shows how we then are able, when we own, to then to impact our community. So a couple of weeks ago, I announced that I created a $25,000 scholarship at my high school, Jack Case High School in Houston. If I don't own, then, yeah, I can get a check from somebody else, but the reality is when I own, I think can actually do more. If I'm going to throw this out. If my company was a 50 or $100 million a year media entity, I would do this. I would literally choose two HBCUs to create Roland S. Martin School of Communications, give three to five million for the creation of the school, would do this in regions of the country. You got the Kathy Hughes School of Communications at Howard, 
So I would study the map and say, okay, who's in the southwest? Who's in the south, in the southeast? Who's along the eastern corridor? Who's in the midwest? And literally create school communications all across the country targeting black students. None of us will live forever. But if we can create the mechanism to create a thousand more Roland Martins and funnel them through these schools, that only happens if we're able to build companies to fund those initiatives. I'm not interested in going to a company, uh, could y'all please set this up? No. If they were paying us fairly, ain't, we ain't got to ask them, we could set it up ourselves. That's what I'm trying to get our people to understand why we're making these demands. Final point. Roland, you hit the nail on the head. You know what? They don't want a bunch of Rolands. They don't want a bunch of Rolands walking around telling the truth, giving the, giving the black community and the broader community that listens to you the actual facts of what is happening. They don't want us to have ownership. I love Dr. Carr's point. It's about white power and white owners with a bunch of black faces and black employees. And at the end of the day, I also like this point about the fact that this is this allows for propaganda to happen for the systems and institutions that we have in this society, whether that be capitalism, whether that be patriarchy, whether that be, you know, all of the isms that negatively affect and oppress us. In order for them to come down, we have to be able to talk about them freely to the public. We have to be able to reach the masses. And as long as we don't own our own media institutions, our own we won't be able to do that. One just posted, beloved, I still don't understand why all these black millionaires in this country are not supporting black media. That speaks volumes. Beloved, what we're trying to say is if we get our fair share, we're creating more black millionaires. This is what I just said. We've got to, black people, we've got to stop saying, why aren't these few black millionaires and black billionaires supporting you, Roland? No. What you should be realizing is if the corporations that black people are supporting pay fair share to black-owned media like me, we create more millionaires. Black Enterprise, excuse me, BET created created multiple black millionaires when Bob Johnson sold it, when they were publicly traded. Y'all didn't hear what I just said. BET, when they were one publicly traded, there were multiple black millionaires. Folks, that's how you create more black millionaires when you end the systemic racism and bias and you demand fair share. As Denzel said in Malcolm X, no, I am not satisfied. General Motors, we're not waiting until June 2025 for 8%. We want 8% now. When we come back, Black Lives Matter. Leaders join us right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered for an exclusive on a new initiative that they are launching. That's next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Hi, I'm Stacey Abrams. I wanted to take a moment to update you on what's happening in Georgia and across the country. Thanks to the efforts of activists like you, 
We stopped Georgia Republicans from passing key parts of their voter suppression wish list. Weekend voting and specifically souls to the polls disproportionately used by black Georgians remain in place. Georgia voters will continue to be able to vote by mail regardless of their reason for doing so. And eligible Georgians will continue to be automatically registered to vote when they obtain their driver's licenses, unless they opt out. Unlike some, though, I won't sugarcoat it. Senate Bill 202 is a power-grabbing and voter-criminalizing suppression bill that is nothing less than Jim Crow 2.0. This Republican-passed legislation was rushed through with an unprecedented speed to avoid public scrutiny. The bill makes it a crime to show compassion by offering a bottle of water or a snack to a voter or their child waiting in line. And the bill makes it much easier to challenge Georgians' right to vote. State House Republicans seized power over the state election board and gave themselves the authority to remove county election officials who don't do their bidding. They placed limits on access to drop boxes, shortened the time frame to request a mail ballot, and more. At a time when Georgia ranks as the worst state in the nation for COVID vaccination rates, Georgia Republicans instead were laser-focused on reviving Georgia's dark past of racist voting laws. Their efforts, based on the lies of conspiracy theorists and capital insurrectionists, are shameful. Sadly, as they learned from Jim Crow voting laws before, you don't have to explicitly exclude voters by race, but you can make sure people of color are clearly the target. It worked before, and they're counting on it working again. But we know from recent elections in Georgia that the way to overcome voter suppression is to vote. We must hold Republicans accountable by voting them out. I understand the passion of those calling for boycotts of Georgia following the passage of SB 202. Boycotts have been an important tool throughout our history to achieve social change. But here's the thing. Black, Latino, API, and Native American voters whose votes are the most suppressed under SB 202 are also the most likely to be hurt by potential boycotts of Georgia. To our friends across the country, Please do not boycott us. And to my fellow Georgians, stay and fight, stay and vote. Make no mistake, though, we must also hold corporations accountable for their silence in this debate. We must demand they speak out against the more than 250 voter suppression bills in 43 states across the country. Let me make it plain. We see three steps companies should take to ensure the constitutional right to vote is real for all Americans, especially voters of color. First, Corporations in Georgia and across America must use their full clout to support the voting rights protected in the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. This is vital to ensure that Americans have access to our democracy and that that access doesn't depend on the state in which you live. Both of these bills are critical and not interchangeable. Second, companies must help address the lack of photo ID in our state and anywhere else where it comes up. It is estimated that 200,000 Georgians do not have a photo ID. And the so-called free state ID is not free when the hours to access it are limited, transportation is difficult, and the documents needed are expensive for the poor and they're hard to find. Companies must fund verified efforts to get these Georgians a photo ID. Third and finally, companies should be honest about the reality of voter suppression in Georgia and around the country. Long lines are just one example. Numerous studies have shown that these lines are in predominantly black and brown communities. Likewise, limits on vote by mail, early voting, and registration are being proposed right now across the country. 
emboldened by Georgia to do whatever they like to voters they don't like. We need corporations to get off the fence and speak up in states still considering this coordinated attack on voting rights. We need Congress to take federal action to fix these harms through the For the People Act. And we need them to ensure that Georgia and other states must pre-clear attacks on voting rights with the passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Together, these actions will mitigate the harm of the horrible bill here in Georgia and the onslaught around the country. This is what corporate responsibility looks like in the insurrection era. The big lie fomented by a major political party that is nothing less than a contemporary Jim Crow. We cannot stand by. We must take action. So let's keep supporting Georgia voters and Georgia workers. And as we do, corporate leaders can show that they stand with us, the voters. Please go to StopJimCrow2.com to find out how you can continue the fight for free and fair elections in Georgia and around the country. Hello, everyone. It's here. Sheard. Hey, I'm Taj. I'm Coco. And I'm Lily. And we're at WV. What's up, y'all? It's Ryan Destiny. And you're watching Roland Martin Unfiltered. Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag on social media in 2013 in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman for the murder of Trayvon Martin. Since then, it's grown to be a global network with branches in cities across the United States. Today, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation announced a five-year, multi-million-dollar grant to Love Not Blood campaign. The organization has an ongoing campaign called Families United for Justice Network, which is a collective of 320 families from across the country whose loved ones were killed by the police. Joining me for an exclusive discussion about this is Patrice Cullors, co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, Elena Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, and Cephas Uncle Bobby Johnson, co-founder of Love Not Blood Campaign. Glad to have all three of you here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Let's start here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Let's start here. Uh, the last several weeks, uh, there have been a number of accusations that have been leveled at Black Lives Matter, at you, Patrice, Melina, uh, by Samaria Rice, by uh, Lisa Johnson, the mother of a young man who was killed in Los Angeles, uh, alleging lack of support for families, uh, alleging raising money on behalf of families. Uh, you all have, for the last year or so, and we had you on before, Patrice, about this, uh, other uh, groups have been complaining, saying that Black Lives Matter Foundation, uh, the movement is not supporting local chapters, things along those lines. So, so how did this particular grant here come about? How did this, in terms of supporting this initiative and supporting these families, because since y'all put out the, uh, the story of receiving $90 million, there's been a bullseye in folks demanding uh, money and other things from Black Lives Matter. So how did this all come about? Uh, thanks, Roland. I'll take that question. Um, and thank you so much for always being a platform where we can have these types of discussions. Um, I'm really grateful um, to be supporting the Love Not Blood campaign, specifically the Families United for Justice, as we've actually been working with Uncle Bobby um, for years, um, since the murder of Oscar Grant, but also afterwards. Uh, we've been uh, partners uh, in fighting for Black Lives uh, really for almost a decade plus now. And um, we've uh, supported their work uh, even when we were a small, scrappy org with very little resources. 
and uh, the minute we received the resources, uh, we knew that we needed to get those uh, uh, resources back onto the ground. And so uh, alongside this multi-million dollar grant that we are um, providing to Love Not Blood, we've also provided um, millions of, of dollars to other organizations as well, not just chapters, but Black-led organizations. And that feels really important to me. Uh, and I'm honestly really proud of the work that we've done. Uh, it's not been difficult. It's not been easy these last couple of weeks, but I'm proud that we have uh, came out transparently and that we are um, showing for our work, uh, all the work that we've done for the last um, uh, eight years uh, as Black Lives Matter. Um, are you revealing, is a five-year multi-million dollar grant, are you revealing exactly how much it is? Not just yet. We're working out the details with the Love Not Blood campaign to uh, really figure out uh, which programs uh, they want to specifically um, support. We don't want to have uh, hands in how they use their dollars. We know the work that they do. We've been supporting them for years. So we just want to make sure that those resources get into the family's hands and they get to decide um, how they continue to build power for communities impacted by state violence. Um, Uncle Bobby, while I go to you, um, share your thoughts about this. Your work with Black Lives Matter again. They've become, uh, Patricia and others, they've become under withering criticism, folks saying they're not being transparent. Uh, your thoughts uh, when you look at the criticism that they have received? Well, Roland, I can only speak to our personal experience um, in working with, of course, Black Lives Matter and specifically Dr. Malena, uh, and I can even speak specifically to Elisa Garza. Uh, even prior to Black Lives Matter coming into existence, uh, Dr. Malena has been on our side working with us uh, during the Justice for Oscar Grant movement. Uh, it was from there where we built a relationship, and of course, um, you know, from uh, 2014 when we created the Love Not Blood campaign, we had a event where we invited families from across the country to come, and they came. And it was from there where we saw that this extended arm of creating this, this idea of, of having families come together under this idea of families being united together. And it was from there where, of course, we put together various conferences, uh, healing circles, uh, events that brought families together. And I have to say, you know, uh, thank you to Black Lives Matter, you know, again, specifically to Dr. Malena, of course, Patrice for helping support these events that we were able to bring these families to. Melina? Yeah, I think that it's um, been said, but we've been involved and in relationship with Uncle Bobby and the um, struggle for justice in the name of Oscar Grant before there was even a Black Lives Matter. And we've always felt um, and continue to feel that directly impacted families have the best solution. They have the best ideas for what they need. And so this support, this pledge to resource the work that Love Not Blood is doing beyond just the conferences is um, a recognition that we need to be in partnership, but also Patrice and I and all of the hundreds and even thousands of organizers within Black Lives Matter um, we're there to support, but not to lead the family-led work. Um, and 
so that's what this commitment is about is about forging and formalizing a partnership that's been there since day one so this is five year um, a five-year initiative uh, for this particular family uh, patrice when it comes specifically to the criticisms that have been leveled by samaria rice mother samaria rice uh, by uh, Lisa Johnson uh, and others. Um, how do you respond to that? The demand they put out this the list of demands they want to see happen, um, and others who say that uh, that y'all are, are frankly profiting off of black death, and you're not in the streets, you're not out here fighting on behalf of folks. That uh, in fact, uh, there are critics who say. Uh, your lavish spending, taking vacations, and going to conferences and things along those lines. Um, what do you say to those critics? Um, well, I, first thing I want to say is that I myself am a black queer woman who uh, grew up in Los Angeles, who also comes from a directly impacted family. Um, I have experienced firsthand uh, the viciousness of the police and the Sheriff's Department, both inside the streets of Los Angeles, but also uh, inside of our jails. Um, I cut my teeth and early organizing and stopping uh, two jails um, from being built in Los Angeles and uh, have um, uh, been a part of our uh, collective protest movement um, uh, before BLM. Um, I also think it's important for people to know that Black Lives Matter is a power-building institution, um, which is different than a charity. And I understand how that can be uh, confusing. Um, charities, while uh, also important, are uh, there to um, uh, uh, put a Band-Aid on the wound. Um, power-building institutions are here, like Black Lives Matter, to change the systems of violence that we've experienced. and. Um, uh, many of us uh, as black organizers have been on the front lines um, for a very long time to ensure that black lives actually matter. Um, and the last thing I'll say on this is um, black organizers are really critical. Um, it's been black organizers who've been able to change the very conditions that um, we have lived in, the suffering that we have lived in. Uh, Fred Hampton was a black organizer. Um, uh, uh, MLK was a black organizer, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker. And so black organizing is a central part of American history and American uh, and the present of America as well. Melina, um, again, we've uh, we've there's been a lot of back and forth on social media, a lot of charges being leveled um, in terms of uh, and, and 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 folks still saying, uh, that you and others are not being upfront, not being transparent. Um, how, how do you respond uh, to that? Um, and how do you respond uh, to the folks who say that you should be even more transparent, that you should be revealing more information? Um, we've, we've seen stories in Politico and others where chapters are critical. Uh, can you share with folks what is actually happening there as you are in essence putting an organization infrastructure together on the fly um, based upon really what's happening with, this, with the infusion of money in the past uh, year. 
So I think it's really important to remember that we just got money, that Black Lives Matter had absolutely no money until about 10 months ago. And we were financing it out of our pockets. And, you know, my kids can attest to we had a beans, bean soup night at the house and we don't go out to eat because we are fine. We were financing it out of out of our pockets. And so it's really important to think about what it means when people were, were grateful for the generosity of people who said, let me put some resources into this power building work that you're doing. But we also want to be good stewards of those dollars. We don't want to just be spending, you know, without a plan in place. Um, as Patrice was sharing, you know, we are part of a long line of black freedom struggle. And we need to make sure that we do the institution building work that's necessary, as well as the support work that's necessary. The question that you asked about on the ground work, about you know being in the streets, you know anybody can tell you that Black Lives Matter across the country, but especially in Los Angeles, is in the streets almost every single day. We have campaigns where we've won major victories, like ousting the district attorney who signed off on 634 deaths at the hands of police, like blocking Garcetti, um, the mayor of Los Angeles, from a cabinet appointment, um, like making sure that the five officers who murdered Keisha Michael and Mark Quentin Sandlin were fired from Inglewood police. And we have ongoing campaigns like confronting police associations that are paying for the defense of people like Derek Chauvin um, in the murder of George Floyd, right? So we have an end police associations um, uh, work that we're doing. We have a people's budget campaign that's saying that major cities all across the country are spending 50% of their city's general fund on police when we need those dollars for health care and housing and good jobs. And so we've been doing work on the ground, organizing work, which is the part of the iceberg that's below the surface, but also the on-the-street work. Um, like I said, we're out in the streets just about every single day. And so um, we want to continue to do that work. We are committed to doing that work. And what you're pointing to that happened over just the last couple of weeks also, I don't think, speaks fully to the level of trust and commitment and belief that the vast majority of Black people especially have in Black Lives Matter, which was recently measured to be the most trustworthy organization in the nation. Uncle Bobby, um, in looking at some of the statements of Samira Rice and Lisa Johnson, they talked about what should be done for the family. But you also work with a number of other families. Just your perspective, not criticizing any family member who's lost anybody. But do you believe it is unfair for two family members to make demands on behalf of all family members or have those family members speak for themselves? How, how, how do you address that? Because there were a lot of people uh, on social media who said that, oh, that, that, that the demands of these two mothers should supersede that of other family members as well when there have been other family members who come out in support of Black Lives Matter or Tamika Mallory, uh, or Bean Crump and others. And I'm specifically asking you that because the situation has created lots of acrimony and pain 
There are people who do not want to criticize them. There are others who say, but that's unfair to make allegations. And folk are like, well, I don't know what side to be on. It's all of that. And so as, so, as an organization that's working directly with 300-plus families, I certainly want to get your perspective. The most important thing is us to remain unified in our struggle to, you know, first rid ourselves of this white supremacy and, of course, holding police officers accountable and bringing about better transparency within the agency in itself. So anytime we have families, and, and we understand where it comes from, you know, there has, when you're emotionally impacted, um, you become very sensitive to various organizations and the way they support you. And so sometimes we can have a tendency to believe that this particular organization or that particular organization has capitalized on our loved one and we make statements. Uh, that seems to overflow where it impacts all families. But not all families have that exact same sentiment or, or, or statement to say. And so from our perspective, uh, the most important thing is that we find ways to make sure that we stay unified, uh, we acquire the same voice, and we continue to move forward in our struggle to get justice for our loved ones, and also to change this issue concerning why police officers are not held accountable. Um, I'm going to um, go to each one of my panelists and ask them to ask a question. Uh, I'll first start with uh, Brittany Lewis, uh, your question for uh, our other guests. So. Yeah, so I would like to talk a bit more uh, when you say that you are not a charity, um, but you are actually a power organization. I think um, that might be where we see a lot of the discrepancy with folks who have these issues with the organization at large. So I'd love for you to elaborate on that point. Yeah, thank you, Brittany. That's a really great, great question. And it's also um, something that we've had to contend with um, over the last few weeks. Uh, and I think a lot of organizations. First thing I want to say is that we're not the only black organization that receives these kind of resources. Um, uh, black organizations across the country receive uh, a ton of resources. Um, but I want to say something else. Um, this is still not enough. Uh, believe it or not, it's still not enough resources. We have been woefully under-resourced um, as black organizations um, forever. So in, in a lot of ways, um, especially from the elders that I've spoken with, this is the first time that black movement is receiving um, this kind of financial support and this kind of resource support. Uh, with that said, uh, our organization's work uh, and many of the other black-led organizations' work is to do a number of things. Um, number one, help aid um, protests um, to challenge uh, issues around state violence, issues around economic injustice, um, issues around um, healthcare injustice and school injustice. Uh, number two, help aid radical policy um, such as the BREATHE Act or uh, reparations packages to help um, really identify the issues um, at the governmental level and to change and transform government. And number three, to help build a loving community um, with one another where we are able to treat 
treat each other well um, as we are doing this work to fight on behalf of all of our family members. And so um, that is the work of power building, building institutions. We're not the only power building institution. My hope and prayer and desire is that this experience really also helps clarify to the nation and to black people in particular um, what power building institutions do. Um, black organizing has always been misunderstood and it's always been unseen work. Um, it's the first time that we saw, especially with the film, uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, what black organizers were doing. For years, we thought the Panther Party um, was just a bunch of black men with guns, because that's what they fed us. And then as we started to dig, we realized, oh, the Panther Party is trying to change and undo the systems that have created black suffering. And that's what we are trying to do, and that's what we have continued to do for eight years. So. My hope and, and prayer and desire is that we are able to help um, make that clear for, for black folks in particular. Now, Misha Cross joins us. Uh, Misha, your uh, question. Sure. So my question, and I hear what you're saying about um, a power movement, and uh, personally, I'm a member of Black Lives Matter in Chicago. I, I think that one of the things that a lot of the local chapters have in argument is that there have been people on the ground since the inception of Black Lives Matter. And much of those organizations believe that through this fundraising process, and, and as was stated earlier, I think that there was a lot of that there was a lot of people at the um, at the Black Lives Matter national level working on this working on this with, you know, basically shoestring dollars, um, putting in a lot of their blood, sweat, and tears from home with the help of loved ones and others. But that's not the case right now. And who knows how long it's going to last? Who knows how long this, this funding stream is going to be evident? But in the case that it is today, what we do know is that a lot of local chapters are hurting, and a lot of local chapters are the ones with the boots to the ground, putting their feet to the fire and getting the work done. And the argument from the outside is not really something that I, I think is as pertinent, at least in my argument, from the Fox News is from the Republican critics, as much as it is those who are black organizers and part of this organization at the local level who have raised some very serious concerns about transparency as well as where they think the, the money is going and just an openness about what is going to happen with the structure when we're moving forward. Where do you see your accountability and what does that actually look like for the future of the organization? Because if your local chapters don't believe in you, I'm very unsure of how long this can actually last. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, thank you for asking that. Uh, I'll just start with saying that um, when we started Black Lives Matter eight years ago, uh, I started it as a young organizer who um, didn't realize that this was going to be something that became so huge. Um, and as we developed uh, the, the chapter system in particular, because that's what we're talking about right now. A lot of people um, call themselves chapters of BLM, but they weren't chapters of the Black Lives Matter that we were building. And so I think it's very important for the audience to know, uh, number one, is there are a ton of people that call themselves Black Lives Matter at this point. Not, not many of them are officially affiliated with the organization. Uh, we realized that we needed to create, for a number of reasons, um, specifically security reasons, we all know very well that black movements uh, get infiltrated, that we had to create a better system of who was inside of the Black Lives Matter global network. Um, and so we uh, created a system where people can onboard um, as official chapters. 
of that network um, and through that process really did um, spend a lot of time together struggling and figuring out what was going to be the next phase of the organization. Um, and much of that process was a ton of transparency. It was showing what, how much you know, money we had, very little, um, where we were trying to go, how do we do this collectively and democratically. And what we realized during that process um, was that not everybody wanted to do, uh, be inside of the Black Lives Matter Global Network. Um, uh, folks know that I'm one of the co-founders, but I'm one of the co-founders that has stayed on. So um, uh, much of the, the, the direction, there was a lot of tension around direction, and we realized that uh, folks were going to go in different directions. Um, and so we started, uh, I didn't start it, uh, Melina can speak to it, Black Lives Matter grassroots. Um, and so there are uh, chapters um, that are really excited about the next phase of Black Lives Matter. And um, I want to make it really clear, this is very normal. It is very normal for people to say, hey, we're going in a different direction, um, let's part ways and keep, keep doing the work for black liberation. Um, all of all the folks that used to be inside of BLM and that are now you know, uh, not affiliated with BLM, I send all of my love and gratitude for all the work that they've done because I am interested in black folks getting free and I wanna make sure that black folks get free. And so um, that was really, uh, you know, uh, in, this, in this latest iteration of BLM, Black Lives Matter grassroots gets developed and it's a really power, powerful space with Black uh, Lives Matter chapters leading that. Um, and the last thing I'll say in this about this is important. Um, it's important and it has been important, especially as part of my leadership, is to listen when people are saying certain things need to shift. Uh, chapters wanted, because they were the ones on the ground doing the work, they wanted to decide the destiny of what the, that work looks like. And so that is the birth of Black Lives Matter grassroots. And there's a powerful team that is doing um, a powerful and amazing work across the country. Uh, and um, that's really, that's, that's, the, that's the story um, and that's the vantage point that I want to bring to this conversation around that work. And those of us who remained in Black Lives Matter grassroots um, decided that we make great partners with the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation. And we also recognize that we don't do exactly the same thing. And so um, we're appreciative again that we're now in a space where the grassroots work can be resourced, where it doesn't have to be that everybody's digging in their pocket. Um, and we're also committed to doing the work because we believe it to be our sacred duty to continue to do work that gets black folks free. Dr. Greg Carr, your question. Thank you, Roland. And again, to everyone, this is the importance of independent black media where these are difficult and necessary conversations can be made because you're right, we're all interested, Sister Colors, in, in freeing us all. And with that in mind, um, with you and my friend Melina Abdullah, Professor Abdullah and Brother Johnson, always all best energies and support to you and your family and everyone affected directly by state violence um of course you know uh, amisha really has asked a specific question that i think a lot of people have had in mind and with, and with that in mind you know what are some of the major challenges to changing the relationship um to maybe perhaps begin to dissolve the fundamental contradiction of externally funded revolutionary change i mean i think there's a there's a strong argument to be made 
that perhaps the only time in this country in the long black freedom movement, which begins, of course, when people put their hands on us and brought us over here into this separate state, as you all well know, right. being deep right. students of, of, of this separate colonial state, this capitalist state, that the only time we really had critical mass to have mass movement for transformative change that wasn't reliant upon external resources may have been the Civil War and Reconstruction. And every social movement we've had, whether it be SNCC and the Panthers, you know, there's a pension movement, there's state violence, and then, of course, there's the withdrawal of whatever increments of support that have been given. Now, given all that, and I ask the question again, you know, how do we deal with this question of externally funded revolutionary change when the folks who we're going to need at critical mass are those the farthest away from what I would say in some ways are an investor class of philanthropists who not only are giving money, but are at some point, if history proves us correct, as Mark Twain said, history don't, uh, don't history uh, doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Uh, <laughs> at some point, we'll perhaps say, well, listen, we gave you all those resources, but, uh, you know, here's something we suggest. And perhaps, I mean, how do we get at resolving, if it can be resolved, that fundamental contradiction of externally funded revolutionary change? I want to take on this question. Um, it's a great question, and it's a question that I think we all should be collectively in conversation about. Um, uh, one thing is true. Uh, our movements have never been as resourced as they are right now. That is true. Um, what we do with those resources uh, is critical, um, and uh, it's necessary um, as we are building strong black radical institutions um, to not lose sight and water down our values. Uh, not once has Black Lives Matter stopped calling ourselves an abolitionist pro-black organization. Uh, not once have we stopped shouting out uh, Black Lives Matter. In fact, the resources have only made us uh, stronger because we haven't allowed ourselves to be whitewashed um, in this process. Um, I know that it's scary. I know that it feels uncomfortable to see a movement that many of us were raised with transition. But I want to say something to, the, to the, the panel, but also to the audience watching. So many of our elders did not get to evolve in their movements because they were assassinated. They were made political prisoners. So we didn't get to see what they wanted to see, the visions that they had for us. And so I see the work that Black Lives Matter is doing as part of that vision, as part of transforming what um, our ancestors, what our elders were trying to do, and we're not gonna be perfect. We are going to make mistakes. That's a part of being a human being, but we are trying our best. We are trying our best because we believe in black people. We believe in black people with all of our heart, uh, with all of our body and soul. Um, it's why we started BLM eight years ago, because we wanted a space where black folks could come together and grieve and be free and laugh and be joyful and protest and to hold our government accountable. And so these resources, we should not be scared of them. Um, the Sierra uh, uh, Club, um, $900 million budget a year. That's their budget. Um, uh, white organizations are more than well-resourced, they're overly resourced. So we shouldn't be scared of the resources. Instead, we should ground ourselves down in our values and our politics and try to imagine where we go and what we do 
with these resources, and that's um, my interest. Um, and I think we keep ourselves accountable to each other, and we listen to one another as we move this uh, really beautiful and hard struggle um, together. Uncle Bobby, um, if you could uh, respond to that, that same question, as well as your thoughts about that with Ray Fire. Well, you know, I I didn't mention earlier uh, when we were talking about uh, this disunity that was taking place. I wanted to uh, kind of touch that again. Uh, not long ago, I guess about a week ago, we had a town hall, um, you know, with many families, close to about 80 families. And, of course, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, Sister Patrice and Dr. Malena, uh you know, put themselves out there to <clears throat> help families understand who Black Lives Matter Global Network is, Black Lives Matter Grassroots, and how we can make sure that we don't hold these um, various complaints or disagreements concerning this relationship. So I thought that would be important to say, you know, and that also was built on, you know, and, and I didn't mean, you know, you know, I need to say this. Uh, I haven't done this work by myself. Of course, my wife, uh, you know, Auntie B, has been a major important aspect in um, engaging mothers and families and helping us, you know, build this unity that we have today. Uh, and I think more specifically in regards to your question, uh, I may need, could you repeat that question for me, Roland? Great so question. Yeah, Brother Johnson, I mean, uh, and, I, and to be very clear, I don't know that there is an answer. Again, this is uncharted territory, but if the cycles we see, whether it be the MSCP absorbing the Niagara movement, whether it be the women's suffrage movement, I mean, you go back through time, the Negro Convention movement, 1830s and 40s, you know, how do we, what are some of the, some of your thoughts on how we address the fundamental contradiction of externally funded revolutionary work? Because we know that the only way we're going to make it is to have critical mass of numbers of people moving in the same direction. And we know that that is diametrically opposed in a capitalist society to the interest of the very people who are writing these these nominal to them checks. How, that, that contradiction sits at the heart of this. And I, and I know that it's a challenge. This isn't a criticism. This is an honest question because I think that's one that we all really have to grapple with. As Sister Cullis said, I, I, how do you... You know, what are your thoughts on that? How do we resolve that contradiction? These are not our friends. <laughs> Correct. Um, we have to just trust each other. We have mm. to believe in ourselves. And we have to really, really trust that we are working to bring about the best for us. Mm -hmm. And I believe that will help uh, this uncharted territory that we're in uh, when we figure out better ways to believe in ourselves and work with ourselves and just make it happen with ourselves. I, I want to just uh, address that just quickly because it's my friend Ray yeah. Carr asking the, asking the 27 questions. Y'all say question. It was 27 questions embedded in that question, Dr. Carr. <laughs> and um, <laughs> Add a dissertation. Don't forget. Don't forget that. Right. Add a right. <laughs> but I do want to address external funding of revolutionary movements. Yeah. Number one, I want to address that 
we did not raise this money. We received this money. So nobody wrote a grant proposal and said, give us this money. This is, and I'm just being frank, this was white guilt money, right? This was white people watching George Floyd be murdered and trying to figure out how they can absolve themselves of guilt. And they said, let me write a check to Black Lives Matter. And so we received the money, but we didn't fundraise for it, right? Number two, I think that um, the amount of money is unprecedented, but the idea of being externally funded as Dr. Carr is lifting is not really new, right? When we think about how did white celebrities fund the Black Power movement, right? When we think about who supported the civil rights movement, even when we think about abolitionism and how that was funded, there's always been an external component. I think Patrice is absolutely right. If we are values driven, if we are clear about our mission, if we are righteous in the way that we move, then that doesn't become as big of an issue as it could be. We're refusing to be bought off. We're refusing to tone down what it is we're saying because somebody white doesn't like it who sends a check, right? If they don't like it, they shouldn't send a check, right? Um, and that's, that's really what we're committed to. So there's all these complications. And as was shared, we don't have the answers to everything. We do trust and consult and love and value each other. And we try to hold each other accountable. And we also have a wonderful team of elders and also a larger kind of ecosystem of black freedom fighters who help us to think through these questions. There are going to be lots more uh, questions, obviously, that are going to be raised uh, for uh, all of you. Um, Uncle Bobby, I want to start with this. How will you How will you respond when people say, oh, y'all are only doing this because of the recent Philly shooting? That's the only reason this money is going to the Love Not Blood campaign. Uncle Bobby, what would you say to anyone who says that? Our history speaks for us, um, the work that we have done in the last 12 years in working with families all over this country and even over into Europe, uh, London specifically, uh, will speak volumes to that statement or that question. Um, and so our history is, is the reason why we do what we do and how we do it. Patrice? How will you answer that when people say, oh, y'all are only doing this five-year, multi-million dollar campaign now because you've been uh, hit hard uh, by uh, Samaria Rice, Casey Dawson, and others? Um, I would respond um, by saying that uh, we have been in direct relationship with um, not just Love Blood, not, not Blood campaigns, but many by state violence, and uh, it was always our intention as BLM to help and support and continue to build the power of black folks, especially the folks who are directly impacted by state violence. So it was always our plan um, to be supportive, and as Melina said, uh, just to receive the dollars and just to receive the resources, um, and um, we are grateful uh, that folks are uh, still so engaged. Black Lives Matter, uh, even if it's 
hard sometimes. Um, we're grateful that there's an engagement and investment team that people do believe in this organization. And honestly, uh, Roland and, and everybody else, uh, we aren't going to stop here. Um, you know, they said that BLM was like Occupy when it first started. How long is Roland going to last? And, and then two years in, they said, oh, you're still going. And well, well why? What keeps you motivated? And then, you know, Trump came into office and they said, oh, where is BLM? Are they still around? And we were still here. And now we're here. Um, we haven't left because we don't plan on leaving or abandoning so very much, Patrice Cullors, um, Lena Abdullah, and uh, Uncle Bobby as well. I uh, certainly appreciate it. Thank you so very much uh, for all three of you uh, joining us, uh, sharing this information with us. Uh, and, and I also thank you for doing so because uh, uh, oftentimes when these announcements are made, uh, it's uh, happened with mainstream media, and we, of course, we know the importance of black media being able to uh, share the information yes. with us, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Rose. Folks, got to go to a commercial break. When we come back, we'll talk with black workers. They do not want our Amazon Zoom. That's next on Roland Martin Report. America is starting to 